Let's open the Scriptures this morning to the second book of Kings, 2 Kings 17 in the Pew Bible, page 430, page 430. Then we'll read a few verses from Amos chapter 9. We'll be returning in the preaching to the Gospel of John. Hopefully, most of us will recall that we spent some time in John's Gospel about a year ago. I preached through the first three chapters of John's Gospel, and I'd like to pick up that series of sermons and continue preaching from chapter 4 starting today. So here in 2 Kings 17, we have the background or some of the background to what Jesus encounters in Samaria. So we're going to read the first six verses and then switch over to verse 24 to the end of the chapter. In the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah, Hoshea, son of Elah, began to reign in Samaria over Israel. And he did, and he reigned nine years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, yet not as the kings of Israel who were before him. Against him came up Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, and Hoshea became his vassal and paid him tribute. But the king of Assyria found treachery in Hoshea, for he had sent messengers to So, king of Egypt, and offered no tribute to the king of Assyria as he had done year by year. Therefore the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison. Then the king of Assyria invaded all the land and came to Samaria, and for three years he besieged it. In the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria, and he carried the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in Halah and on the Habor, the river of Gozan, and in the cities of the Medes. Now we're going to go to verse 24. In between, the, the writer explains why God uh, sold the Israelites into exile. And then we pick up the story in verse 24. And the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, and Sepharvaim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the people of Israel. And they took possession of Samaria and lived in its cities. And at the beginning of their dwelling there, they did not fear the Lord. Therefore, the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. So the king of Assyria was told, The nations that you have carried away and placed in the cities of Samaria do not know the law of the God of the land. Therefore, he has sent lions among them, and behold, they are killing them, because they do not know the law of the God of the land. Then the king of Assyria commanded, Send there one of the priests whom you carried away from there and let him go and dwell there and teach them the law of the God of the land. So one of the priests whom they had carried away from Samaria came and lived in Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. But every nation still made gods of its own and put them in the shrines of the high places that the Samaritans had made. Every nation in the cities in which they lived. The men of Babylon made Sukkoth Benoth the men of Kuth made Nergal, the men of Hamath made Ashimah, and the Avites made Nibhaz and Tartak, and the Sepharvites burned their children in the fire to Adramelech and Anamelech, the gods of Sepharvaim. 
They also feared the Lord and appointed from among themselves all sorts of people as priests of the high places who sacrificed for them in the shrines of the high places. So they feared the Lord, but also served their own gods after the manner of the nations from among whom they had been carried away. To this day they do according to the former manner. They do not fear the Lord, and they do not follow the statutes or the rules or the law or the commandment that the Lord commanded the children of Jacob, whom he named Israel. The Lord made a covenant with them and commanded them, You shall not fear other gods or bow yourselves to them or serve them or sacrifice to them, but you shall fear the Lord, who brought you out of the land of Egypt with great power and with an outstretched arm. You shall bow yourselves to him, and to him you shall sacrifice. And the statutes and the rules and the law and the commandment that he wrote for you, you shall always be careful to do. You shall not fear other gods, and you shall not forget the covenant that I made with you. You shall not fear other gods, but you shall fear the Lord your God, and he will deliver you out of the hand of all your enemies. However, they would not listen, but they did according to their former manner. So these nations feared the Lord and also served their carved images. Their children did likewise, and their children's children, as their fathers did, so they do to this day. Now we turn to the prophecy of Amos, <clears throat> Page 979, where Amos prophesies about the future, the new day, or you could say the end of days that the Messiah will bring. We'll pick it up at verse 11, chapter 9. In that day I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. They shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. I invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 4, page 1131. And I know it's been a year, so let me just refresh us with a context a little bit. In chapter 3, Nicodemus the Pharisee had come to see Jesus at night, and they had a conversation, and in that conversation the Lord Jesus uh, made it clear to Nicodemus that he had to be born again, born again of the water and the Spirit. And then a little bit later in chapter 3, we read about Jesus and his disciples uh, baptizing, just like John and his disciples apparently were baptizing. Uh, they were in two different locations, but just there's a background there of that conversation and the work of Jesus and his disciples baptizing. So just keep that in mind as we go into chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 1, 
Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. Just then His disciples came back. They marveled that He was talking with a woman, but no one said, What do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say, There are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. 
Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. That's as far as our text will go. In response to the preaching of the gospel, we'll sing about the river of delights, the living water that God gives us. Psalm 36, stanza 2, and we'll couple that with hymn 73, stanza 4. Holy and loved church of our Lord Jesus Christ, for whom is the gospel? How far does God's saving grace in Jesus Christ extend? Are there limits? Are there certain people groups or certain kinds of individuals that Jesus is not interested in? For whom did the Son of God come to earth, take on human nature, suffer and die, and rise to new life again? Was it just for the Jews and perhaps the occasional non-Jew? Was it for a particular class, people with decent morals maybe, a fair upbringing, those who contribute to society, upstanding members of society? Well, questions like those lie beneath the surface in the, the context of our passage, and they receive an answer in our text. When Jesus had been recently conversing with the Jewish leader, the Pharisee Nicodemus, in chapter 3, he told Nicodemus that God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish. Whoever, how far does that whoever extend? Well, Jesus gives us the answer when He travels to meet a Samaritan woman who didn't even know she needed saving. I bring you this word of the Lord. Jesus gives living water to a thirsty Samaritan woman. We'll see Him opening blinded eyes and harvesting white fields. Well, as I mentioned in the last portion of chapter 3, we see there or can learn there that John the Baptist and Jesus were both busy baptizing people. Jesus and His disciples were somewhere in the southern portion of the land in the Judean countryside. John and His disciples were further north, getting closer to the Sea of Galilee. 
We are uh, in, at, at this time, we are in the early months of Jesus' ministry before John was put into prison. And now as chapter 4 opens up, we are told that Jesus begins to travel northward again to Galilee. He's been there before. We find Him going back and forth, north to south in the Gospels. So now He heads north again because of the Pharisees, we're told. Those Pharisees were mentioned in John chapter 1. The Pharisees had shown suspicion toward John the Baptist already. They had confronted John. They had challenged John. They had questioned John. They clearly didn't approve of John. And now they turn their attention and, and the heat begins to fall on Jesus. Jesus realizes this. The Pharisees are jealous. And so before they can act and put obstacles in His way, He decides to leave and go back north to Galilee. And then I'd like you to notice his route. That's mentioned in chapter 4, verse 4 of our text. Simple sentence there. The gospel writer puts it this way, and Jesus had to pass through Samaria. Did he have to pass through Samaria? Was that a geographical necessity? Like, was that the only road to travel to get to Galilee? Well, the answer is clearly no. There was definitely another route that went around Samaria to the east, on the other side of the Jordan River. And we know from other parts of the Gospels that Jesus traveled that route more than a few times. In fact, for many Jews, that eastern route was the preferred route. It was a little longer, but not terribly longer. It was preferred because it precisely kept them out of Samaria. No, no true Jew wanted to go through Samaria as a rule. But now we read in verse 4 that Jesus had to travel through Samaria. And what that tells us, brothers and sisters, is that our Messiah is here on a mission Kind of like another instance when Jesus meets for the first time the tax collector who has climbed up in a tree. You remember that story? He's in Jericho. There's a tax collector up in a tree. Jesus has never met him before, but Jesus stops below the tree and he looks up at the man and he addresses him by name, Zacchaeus. You come down from there, for I must go to your house today. Zacchaeus was shocked. Never met him. Jesus had a plan to meet Zacchaeus, you see. Well, same here. Jesus has a purpose and a plan to meet with this woman in Samaria. I must dine with the tax collector in Jericho, he said on that occasion, and on this one I must meet with a woman at Jacob's well in Samaria. We have to go north through Samaria. And if it was scandalous on that other occasion in Jericho for Jesus to enter the home of a thieving tax collector. Remember how the people wagged their tongues at that occasion? It was even more scandalous for a Jew to freely converse with a Samaritan. As we learn from John's comments in verse 9, there's a, a comment in parentheses, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. You just didn't deal with them. 
You walked by them. You did the least interaction you could with Samaritans. And the main reason for that is found in what we read in 2 Kings 17. Hundreds of years earlier, the king of Assyria had dragged into exile the Israelites that had been living in the northern kingdom, and he had imported and replaced those Israelites with Gentile colonists from other conquered peoples. The capital city of northern Israel at, in, in the time of the kings was the city of Samaria, and over time that, that whole region was given the name Samaria. So by Jesus' time, Samaria is that portion of land, kind of a square portion. If you think of the land of Canaan as a rectangle, in the north was Galilee, in the south was Judea, and sandwiched in between was Samaria. And it was stocked, it was inhabited by largely Gentile strangers who likely married into the remaining few Israelites there. So at best, they were a mixed breed. And for that alone, they were regarded by the Jewish people as unclean, inherently unclean. But there was a bigger problem. The biggest problem of all was that these foreigners in Samaria, they had taken with them from their homelands, they had taken with them all their familiar idol worship. Even though, as we read, the Lord had sent lions among them to, to warn them, that that was not acceptable to him, and a priest was sent to teach them the ways of the true God, and they did learn to worship the Lord somewhat. Yet still, we read, these Samaritans, they, they hung on to their idol worship. So the worst thing about the Samaritans was that they had a mixed worship. They, they would bow down to their idols, and they would worship the Lord. Guess how the Lord feels about that? Second commandment, we hear it every Sunday. The Lord hates that mixed worship. The Lord is a jealous God. Worship no other gods before me. So it was a great offense for these Samaritans to, to bow down to their idols and then somehow alongside of that to, to set out to worship the Lord. God was appalled at this sin of the Samaritans, and so God's people, the Jews, they also were appalled, and they just stayed away. They abhorred those Samaritans. It was, a, it was an, an ugly sight to their eyes, those people. You didn't have any truck with Samaritans if you were a Jew. That is, until Jesus comes. Until God, who is upset by the Samaritans' syncretism, comes down to earth in His Son to address the sin and the corruption that He finds among people. And just like we saw Jesus, you might recall that in John chapter 2, Jesus went up to Galilee. That's where He first started His work. He went into the spiritually dark area of Jewish Galilee. So here the Messiah is not afraid to go into the spiritual wasteland of mixed Gentile Samaria. He goes there, as John tells us in the first chapter of his book, he goes there to shine the light of life. Or we could switch the analogy. He goes there to provide living water to a thirsty soul. And the soul that Jesus goes 
to meet, chooses to meet, and to save is a woman by herself at Jacob's well. Let's just pause over that for a moment and see something of how this would have been understood by the disciples and by people of the time. If Samaritans were looked down upon, a Samaritan woman was that much more looked down upon. In that society, broadly speaking, among Jew and Samaritan, women generally were not highly regarded. That's not right, of course, but that's the way it was. They didn't have a lot of legal rights. They were thought to be spiritually weak. They were thought to be prone to sin. Men preferred that women were seen but not heard. The opinions of women were generally not respected. They were not consulted by men. So, of all the people that Jesus could have chosen to meet in Samaria, the least likely and the most surprising would be a Samaritan woman coming to draw water from a well. And notice that she comes alone. We're told, verse 6, that she comes about the sixth hour. Just her. Sixth hour was about noon. It was not strange for women to draw water for their households, but the normal time for them to do so would be in the cool of the evening. So as the, the weary Jesus is resting himself at noon hour by this well in the heat of the day, his disciples are in town buying food, out comes this solitary lady to draw water. Why is she coming now by herself? Well, the text doesn't tell us in so many words, but could it be that she is deliberately avoiding the other women of Sychar because those women look down on her? From later in the story, we know that this woman is living with a man outside of marriage, so she's living in sexual sin. We know, too, that she has already had five husbands. We don't know what happened to those husbands. Could be divorce. Could be that one or two died. Either way, to have had five husbands is unusual, to say the least. To the public, it would be unseemly, and to anyone in the community, it just didn't look good, no matter how you sliced it, and she's living with a guy. So there's very clearly a cloud of shame hanging over this lady. This particular Samaritan woman had a reputation that made her undesirable company even for other Samaritan women. So it's not hard to conclude that she was a social outcast, and that's why she walks alone at high noon to Jacob's well to fetch some water. And she receives water, only not the water she came looking for. To the woman's great shock, she discovers a Jewish man sitting at the well, but the shock is actually more that he opens a conversation with her. She cries out, in, in a shocked voice, how, how would you ask this of me? 
And then let us notice the manner of Jesus as he interacts with this woman. In chapter 3, by comparison, he had conversed with the Pharisee Nicodemus. Nicodemus had come to Jesus with a totally different manner. He had come to Jesus self-assured. He was confident in himself, Nicodemus was. He was a teacher. He figured he knew Jesus. He would be respected by Jesus as a peer. That, that was Nicodemus' approach. This woman, this woman is totally oblivious. She, she comes to this well, doesn't have a hot clue who is even awaiting her at the well. Nicodemus had to be challenged by the Lord. He had to be even reprimanded for his lack of understanding, though he was Israel's teacher. This woman, she has to be taught, and she has to be patiently drawn out so that she can see for herself her true need. Both the Pharisee and the Samaritan woman need the salvation that Jesus provides, but with each one the Lord takes a different approach, a different tack. Both at first misunderstand Jesus' words, but in the end, it's actually the Samaritan woman who clearly has her eyes opened and her spiritual thirst quenched. Isn't Jesus' way with people amazing? He treats Nicodemus the way he needed to be treated. He treats the Samaritan woman the way she needed to be treated. He knew people so well. And because he also had divine insight into their characters, he handles each one just so. Doesn't he handle you and me just so as well? Doesn't he speak into your life by word or deed at just the right time and in just the right way so that we end up experiencing blessing? Sometimes He speaks a, a word of correction regarding our sin. Sometimes He lets us discover the wonder of grace, but always at the end there's an encouragement and there's a benefit when the Lord deals with us. And while it's impossible for us to duplicate what Jesus did with either Nicodemus or the Samaritan woman because of His divine knowledge of their need and His matchless wisdom, when we are speaking with people about the way of life, can we not follow Jesus in the way that He exercised patience, in the way that He was kind, not rude or irritable or resentful, but He was persistent and gentle while still being honest and truthful, right? Jesus doesn't hide sin either for Nicodemus or for the Samaritan woman. He's the one that uncovered her sin. Jesus very quickly offers this woman something he calls living water. Now, that was an expression familiar in that culture. It just basically refers to running water or water from a spring as opposed to water collected in a cistern. Only Jesus doesn't use it in the normal way. He, he's using it as a metaphor. Jesus uses a second metaphor to get across the same thing in verse 10, calling it a gift. This is what He says in verse 10, if you knew the gift of God and who it is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked Him and He would have given you 
living water. So living water is the gift. Two metaphors, both refer to the same thing that Jesus had earlier spoken to Nicodemus about. He's speaking about the Holy Spirit. Jesus had said to the Pharisee, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Water was a a well-known Old Testament symbol for the cleansing power of the Holy Spirit. That's why Jesus could reprimand Nicodemus. Nicodemus, you should have known that from Ezekiel 36. Jesus now uses this, this metaphor again for the Samaritan woman. Later, he'll use the living water metaphor in John 7, where he says, whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow streams of living water. Now this, says John in chapter 7, now this Jesus said about the Spirit whom those who believed in Him were to receive. So when Jesus is talking about living water, He's using a picture. It's kind of a, a shorthand for a way to refer to the entire package of salvation. Jesus is saying to this thirsty woman, if you ask me for the gift that I have to give you, here's what I'll give you. This is the package. I will give you my blood to pay for all your sins and make you right with God, totally forgiven. And I will give you my spirit to live in you so that you can feel my love with you always. And through my spirit who lives in you, I will guide you into thankful obedience, away from the pathway of sin. The living water, this is all living water that I have for you. It satisfies your thirsty soul. It brings you eternal life with me. That's what I have to give you, my child. Jesus is used to using compact images that have a ton of theology, you could say, packed into them. And it's not too surprising that the woman doesn't understand very much like Nicodemus didn't get it at first. This happens actually quite regularly in John's gospel. People are blind to Jesus' meaning or to Jesus' true significance. They don't see who He is until they have their eyes opened by God. Jesus Himself will tell us this in John 6, verse 44. No one can come to Me unless the Father who sent Me draws that person. That's something we have to keep in mind as we share the gospel with our neighbors. Our neighbors, our unbelieving neighbors, they can't see what we see until God opens their eyes. That calls for prayer prayer that the Lord would do that, and it calls for patience on our part. They've got a block in them, a blindness in them. We need to be patient as Jesus was patient and, and gently leads this woman along to see her need. He does that when He brings to light the fact that she's living with a man who was not her husband. That for this lady was a very sensitive subject we can appreciate. Even a Samaritan knew that was sin in God's eyes. They respected the Samaritans, the five books of Moses. They had the Ten Commandments. They knew that this kind of 
living was wrong in God's eyes. So this woman was living in sin. She, she was dealing with a guilty conscience. And as Jesus brings it to light, she starts to feel her spiritual thirst. She starts to understand her true need. And Jesus' words to her, they spark a desire to know more from this Jewish man she now regards as a prophet. And he stays with her in the conversation. In verse 20, she asks, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and she's referring to Mount Gerizim, which was right beside Jacob's well. That was a holy mountain for them. But you say, you Jews say, that in Jerusalem on Mount Zion is the place where people ought to worship. See, this was an age-old controversy between the Samaritans and the Jews. And it might sound at first like she's trying to change the subject. Let's not talk about my husbands and all that. But I don't think she's doing that. She's not really sidestepping her sin. Rather, she's seeking the truth. Jesus has exposed her sin and her need for forgiveness. So she's trying to figure out where does she need to go for that forgiveness. Are you Jews right? I mean... Have you got it right down there in Jerusalem, or have we Samaritans got it right here in Mount Gerizim? Should I seek forgiveness? Should I try to get right with God in Jerusalem or here on Mount Gerizim? Where can I find salvation, O man at the well? And in his answer, the Lord Jesus must have flabbergasted this woman because he announces a, so, a totally new era is dawning. Jesus says to her, on the one hand, you know, you Samaritans, you are in the wrong and you've been wrong all along about worshiping Mount Gerizim because salvation is from the Jews. God gave His covenant to Israel. He established His temple in Jerusalem. He has His name there in Jerusalem. That is where He is worshiped properly. He also promised that salvation would come out of the Jews. A Savior would be born out of the Jews. But then Jesus says, on the other hand, the time has come when people will no longer worship at Jerusalem or here on Mount Gerizim. There's a new era dawning. And then he says in verse 23, he describes the kind of worship that will happen in the new era. True worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. There's going to be people worshiping in spirit and in truth. It's one of those challenging sayings of our Lord. And people have thought it means different things, but let's try to break it down in the context. Context is always very critical. Notice first, that Jesus, in speaking to the Samaritan woman, refers to God as Father. You will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. That was strange talk to either Samaritan or Jew, a very unfamiliar way of speaking about God. And this is the first time in John's gospel that Jesus speaks of God as Father. Jesus is hinting that if God is Father, there must also be a Son. And that's something He had spoken to Nicodemus about, chapter 3, verse 16, 
For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. The Son, He had said to Nicodemus, the Son will die to give people life with the Father, to make them His children. So, again, He's, he's only hinting at it. He's implying it. In this new era, God will be your Father, dear woman, he will be your father through the work that the son will do. And through the work the son will do, you will worship the father in spirit and in truth. What does that mean? Well, this is not referring to the heart condition of the worshiper. That's how some people take it, as in, well, God will only accept people who worship from their hearts, people who worship in sincerity and truth, and not just go, those who go through the motions. The new thing is that it's not just going to be an outward form of religion like it was, some say, in the Old Testament, but now it's going to be from the heart in sincerity and in truth. But brothers and sisters, that's exactly what God has demanded of His people from all time. In the very Pentateuch, the, the laws of Moses, Moses has written time and again that the Lord wants us to love Him with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, all our physical might. Psalm 50, God never accepted legalistic, formalistic worship from His people. That's what He charges His people with bringing in Psalm 50 just a bunch of sacrifices without a heart for God. No, no. From the beginning of the Old Testament, God has always wanted sincerity and worship from the heart. So that's not what Jesus is talking about. That's not the new thing. Spirit here has to have a capital S. You see, the problem in Greek is there's no capitalization. So when you have a word like spirit, you have to, by context, figure out whether the writer is talking about or the speaker is talking about a human spirit or the Holy Spirit. And here, Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit. You'll find in some Bibles a reference in a footnote that this could be Spirit, capital S. And I'm convinced that's exactly what it should be, Spirit, capital S, because Jesus has been talking about the Holy Spirit. And that's the new element. People will be able to worship God through the Spirit living in them. Okay, what does he mean by truth then? Well, he's referring to, Jesus is referring to himself, the Messiah, the Christ, who has arrived now to undertake his mission. And as Christ has arrived on earth, he is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament shadows. He's the reality. You see, in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, God had given the temple and all of its ceremonies and sacrifices. Those were shadows. They served a purpose. Grace was administered through the means of those shadows. They, but those shadows all pointed forward to a time when the reality would actually come. And the reality is Jesus. That's why He cleansed the temple. Remember John 2? Jesus is God in the flesh. The time of the shadows is over. The time of the pointers is over. So Jesus is the truth. That's what that means. We don't often use it that way, but that's how the Bible uses it. 
So Jesus is saying, woman of Samaria, you can worship God. You can have the Almighty God as your Father if you come to me, the Son. I'm going to bring about a new era of relationship with God. If you believe in me, I will give you the Holy Spirit, my Spirit, to live inside of you, and you will know God as your Father. Your communion will be true and deep and full. This is the living water that God holds out to the Samaritan woman, and He holds it out to any thirsty soul who craves it for you, for me, for anyone in our city, for anyone anywhere in the world. It's for self-righteous Pharisees. It's for those caught up in sexual sin. It's offered to the arrogant and to the ignorant to those who are full of themselves and to those who are downcast in their sorrow. It's offered to leaders and to followers, to men and to women, to the young and to the old, to people who think they know and to those who haven't got a clue. It's offered to Jew and to Gentile, even to a Samaritan woman rejected by her very own people. To all whose eyes have been opened by divine power to come to Jesus and say, Lord, I see my thirst. I feel my thirst. Give me this water so I will no longer thirst. Jesus gives it. He gives it in abundance to satisfy our hungry and thirsty souls unto eternal life. And His grace it continues. For through you and through me and all His converted people, the Lord Jesus is pleased to set us to work harvesting the white fields. For after Jesus responds to the woman's comment that the Christ is coming with those profound words, I who speak to you am He, the woman has changed. So changed is she that she forgets her water jar at the well. She just drops it, just like earlier the disciples had dropped their fishing nets and gone after Jesus. In her case, she drops the water jar. She runs back to town to start sharing her amazing news. She forgets what people might think of her. She just starts talking. She says, I met a fellow who told me all that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? She holds it out to them. She entices them to come to the well. And then look at verse 30 of our text. They went out of the town and were coming to Jesus. You see what Jesus has done? He turned this outcast Samaritan woman into an evangelist for the gospel. And it's very simple, really. When you have drunk from the wells of salvation yourself, when you have had your own soul quenched with forgiveness of your sins, when you have come to know peace with the Father and felt all the guilt lifted from off your shoulders, you have to tell others about it. You have to tell them where the well is, right? 
when you know the joy of your own salvation and you see your neighbor over there still in the dark, still thirsty in a parched desert, you just can't keep the news inside you, can you? I know where there's water for you. Come, I'll show you. And by the power of God at work in the hearts of those Samaritans, her testimony becomes very effective. So effective that Jesus uses it to teach His disciples a lesson. All of a sudden, the disciples reappear. They come into the foreground in verse 22. They, they come back to the well, and they are dumbfounded that Jesus could be talking to a Samaritan woman, but they don't ask Him about it. They don't seek to understand. They actually have made a private judgment. They're bothered by it privately, but they don't want to offend their master by raising it, so they just kind of want to drop it. They don't really want to learn what might be going on. Besides, they have returned with food, and in their minds that is more pressing because the master was there at the well, hungry and thirsty and weary. And so they start uh, approaching him and asking him and even begging him, Master, please eat something. Come on, eat something, Lord. That was the pressing thing on their minds. But to Jesus, that is not the more pressing thing. Verse 34, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. That's my food. This is the same Jesus who had spent 40 days and 40 nights fasting in the wilderness, right? Only a few months earlier. Now He's here in Samaria, and He had to be there. He had to go through Samaria to bring living water to one thirsty soul. My disciples, do you not understand my mission? Did I not instruct you to baptize those who came out confessing their sins, just like John's disciples, to prepare them for the coming of the kingdom. And now look, disciples, there's a harvest of souls coming your way right here in Samaria. Lift up your eyes and look. That's the upshot of the image that Jesus uses in verse 35. He says to the disciples, Do you not say there are four months more? Are there, and then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Jesus loves to play with metaphors. He's doing it again. In the very next verse, He describes an unusual scene, the sower and the reaper, as being in the same field at the same time. Normally, it's separated by four months, the sowing and the reaping, at least. But he says sower and reaper are going to be in the same field. He's picking up on that image from Amos chapter 9. Amos, who prophesied about the last days, that the days will come where the sower won't even be uh, finished his work and, and the harvester will be right behind. In other words, the harvest will be so plentiful and so abundant and so successful that the harvester will bump into the a sower on the fields. It's, in other words, it's going to be a staggering harvest. And Jesus is saying to the disciples, it's here, look, the fields are white. What does He mean by that? There are no crops in that area 
in all of Israel that actually look white at harvest time. Some look golden, some look yellow, but none look white. But when Jesus says the fields are white, He's actually not talking about the, the plants anymore. He's changed the metaphor. He's, he's coming to the reality now. He's speaking about people. Because as the disciples were to look up, look, look up with their eyes at the time when Jesus says to them to do so, they would have seen what? They would have seen people, men and women, streaming out of the city of Sychar toward Jacob's well. What were they wearing? They wore what all people wore in those days, white clothing because of the heat of the sun. So the fields are white, not with plants, but with people coming toward the Lord Jesus at the well. The fields were white in that respect. So Jesus is saying to His disciples, Go out, My disciples, and speak with them, just like earlier you spoke with people who came to be baptized. Teach them and baptize them. No, that's not stated in the text, but I, I think it's implied, given what we know from chapter 3, the disciples had to be part of the mission. They had a mission themselves to assist Jesus in His mission. And by the end of their two days, the Samaritans of Sychar could confess, this is indeed the Savior of the world. For whom is the gospel? For whom is salvation? It's for everyone, every thirsty soul. And the harvest is white. Jesus later commanded the disciples and the church thereafter to go out to all the nations of the world to teach them about Him. There are souls aplenty waiting to be gathered in. Are we willing to play that role? In this mission. And there's lots of, lots of different roles we can play. You could be an average single person, male or female, youth or adult, but you know the grace of the forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And what you do is, what the woman did, you share it with people. Your acquaintances, your neighbors, your co-workers, you could be a mother or a father in your home who teaches this to your children. That's also teaching the nations. You could be a retired person who passes on this good news to people you volunteer with. You might even be someone who is preparing for a calling as a preacher or a missionary to proclaim the gospel and baptize. There is work for everyone, and everyone can do it. Because all you really need is to have tasted the sweet living water that Jesus gave. And if you've tasted that, then you go and bring the same sweet water to your thirsty neighbors. Don't leave them in their thirst. Bring it to them. Amen.